the morning. Our scripture reading this morning is on. Okay. <laughs> Our scripture reading this morning is from Exodus 31, 1 through 11. Get home. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of crafts. Moreover, I have appointed Aholiab, son of Ahashimach, of the tribe of Dan, to help him. Also, I have given ability to all the skilled workers to make everything I have commanded you. The tent of meeting, the Ark of the Covenant law with the atonement cover on it, and all the other furnishings of the tent. The table and its articles, the pure gold lampstand and all its accessories, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offerings, and all its utensils, the basin with its stand, and also the woven garments, both the sacred garments for Aaron the priest and the garments for his sons when they serve as priest, and anointing oil and fragrant incense for the holy place. They are to make them just as I commanded you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. For reading that for us. Good morning. My name is Bill Gorman. We're so glad that you're here this morning and uh, part of worshiping with us together. And uh, whether you have been with Christ Community for a long time or this is your first Sunday, one, we're really glad you're here. And two, I just remind you that we, from the very beginning at Christ Community, have been guided by a mission statement, uh, and that is that we desire to be a caring family of multiplying disciples, influencing our community and world for Jesus Christ. So we're about, and it's why, as a caring family, we do things like wearing name tags and, you know, jotting out our names on the clipboards. If you haven't had a chance to do that yet, I encourage you to do that. It just helps us to know one another and be present, especially the name tags. Um, the, you know, we, we really want us to do that as a community because I think we've all had that moment where you met someone at church last week, and then you see them at church next week, and you realize, I don't remember their name, and either you awkwardly try to avoid saying their name in the conversation with them, uh, or you just avoid talking to them <laughs> because you don't want that moment. And so uh, just the simple act of making a name tag is a great way to love your neighbor, uh, to help them remember your name, and for them to remember yours as well. Also, uh, happy Father's Day to the dads in the room as well. Um, if you're a dad, yeah, uh, thank you, Mickey. Uh, it's good to celebrate that today. And so um, as we prepare to look at the passage that Kay read for us, let me just pray for us, and, and especially for uh, dads on this Father's Day. Father in heaven, we are thankful that we have the incredible privilege more than um, and we can barely begin to fathom of calling you Father. As Jay Packer says, the, the highest privilege of the gospel is that we have been adopted as sons and daughters and we can call you Father. And so we're thankful for our fathers today, our earthly fathers, our dads today who um, have loved us, who have cared for us, and provided for us. And we also know, Lord, um, that for some of us, our relationship with our dads has not always been easy, um, that maybe um, there's been hurt or strain or even abuse in that relationship. And so we just pray, if there's painful memories of, of dad on this day, that you would, in a particular way in this day, be present in healing, 
For those of us who are dads, maybe we're older and we look back uh, on our time of raising kids and, and wish that we had done things differently or um, had done things better. Would your grace just be sufficient for those, those regrets and um, those wishes? For those of us who are currently raising children, even in this moment, Lord, would you um, help us in the places where we fall short to, to be the dads that our kids need us to be? And for others of us here this morning, we may long to be dads. And for whatever reason, in whatever ways, that desire has not yet been met. And so for those who find themselves there, we pray that you would, again, that your grace would be sufficient. And we even ask that you might fulfill that longing for those who have it, desire to be a dad. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, whose sacrifice made way uh, the possible, the adoption of us as sons and daughters, and the power of the Holy Spirit, who places that spirit within us to be able to cry, Abba, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, now let me just address something right from the beginning here as we start. Uh, For some of you, um, okay, let's be honest, probably most of you, when you heard the passage that Kay read for us this morning, you might have I've been wondering, did they make a mistake? Uh, What in the world is the sermon going to be about this morning? For those of you, maybe this is your first Sunday ever with us at Christ Community, and you're sitting there thinking, uh, okay, I've I've made a huge mistake uh, as I heard the (laughs) passage being read. Uh, Maybe if you've been at Christ Community for a while and you heard that passage being read, you're you're still thinking, I've made a huge mistake. And maybe if you're the preaching pastor this morning and you heard that passage read, you thought, I've made a huge mistake um, in this text this morning. And, and maybe, just maybe, you were hoping that, you know, all this talk of lampstands and altars and holy garments and incense, and, you know, these are the kinds of passages that we tend to skim over when we're doing our reading the Bible in a year thing. And, uh, and maybe you're thinking, maybe they just gave Kay the wrong passage. You know, maybe this is a mistake. We've got one more week left in Philippians. Uh, but no, this is, we, that was on purpose. She did not read the wrong passage. This is where we are. In fact, We have chosen an entire series, uh, eight weeks this summer, to walk through some of the the weirder, some of the more obscure, uh, forgotten stories in the Bible. And, you know, if if the Bible were a, you know, an vinyl LP album, this would definitely be the B-side stories that we're going to be looking at. We're calling this series Forgotten Family. In fact, you can pick up, if you didn't get a chance to, uh, last week I think we had these out, but these little kind of companion journals, they're in the ta- on the tables in the back of this room here, and this will kind of help you to know where we're going each week, a place where you can take notes on the sermon, um, that kind of thing. So pick up one of these if you haven't. Uh, but we're calling this series, again, Forgotten Family. For It's all about the ancient people of God, our, our family through faith, whose ancient stories still resonate in our stories today. But we've, we've often forgotten some of these stories, and uh, we often forget how history shapes our present, how our own family of origin shapes our lives, and even uh, that's true of our family of faith as well. And these old forgotten stories, they matter. And so for the next eight weeks, we're going to jump around a little bit in the story of the Bible, but each week will be a different story of, of a different kind of forgotten family member. So we're going to look at some women, Deborah, and Miriam, and Abigail, and Lydia, some men like Uzziah and Philemon. Uh, And believe it or not, today, as we look at the story of Beziel and Oholiab, 
we're going to see that they actually have something profound to teach us about all of life. In fact, I want to suggest this morning that if we forget about these two guys, we will actually miss most of what God has for us in our lives. That's right, that if we miss what God is showing us in the lives of these two really ordinary people, Bezalel and Aholiab, that we will end up missing out on how God is at work in the majority of our lives. And so this morning, I want to introduce you to these two oft-forgotten family members. And I want to just suggest to you, both their story is kind of stunningly ordinary, but also surprisingly encouraging. And I know I'm going to have to prove that, that second point, that it's surprisingly encouraging to you, but I, I, give me a shot here, hang with me, and let's take a trip sort of in our imaginations back about 3,500 years to 1500 BC in ancient Egypt, and that's where the story of Bezalel begins. This is where Bezalel and Eliab live. They're Israelites, and they were born at a time when their survival as children is, is actually somewhat miraculous, not just because in the ancient world you have moments of higher infant mortality, even like we still have today in certain populations and parts of the world. So their survival is not just kind of miraculous because of that, but they were born at a time living under a ruler, an Egyptian tyrant who was enslaving the Israelite people and was actively trying to kill as many baby boys as possible. And listen to how the book of Exodus begins. This is where their story is found. Pharaoh and his officials, they're afraid of how numerous the Israelites were becoming there in Egypt. And so verse 11 of chapter 1, so they appointed taskmasters over them to oppress them with hard labor and they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out so that they dreaded the sons of Israel. And the Egyptians used violence to compel the sons of Israel to labor, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks and at all kinds of labor in the fields and all their labors which they violently had them perform as slaves. But that wasn't all. Not only were the Israelites enslaved, but there's actually the beginning of a genocide taking place here. Look at what's next in verse 15. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Sephara and the other one who was named Hua, two other forgotten family members. We're not going to look at their stories, but they're absolute heroines in the biblical story in Exodus. And he said to them, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birthing stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded, but let the boys live. So because of the incredible sort of courage and faith of these two Israelite midwives, Beziel and Oholiab, they have a fighting chance of survival. But only then to find a life of slavery. Slavery that was the only life their parents had ever known. It's the only life that they thought they would ever know. From the time that they were little, all they saw was their parents enslaved. And I wonder when they first met. Maybe it wasn't until Exodus 31 in this moment, but maybe they grew up together in Egypt. I wonder if they ever dreamed together about what it would be like to live some other life, what they would do if they weren't slaves. 
We don't know that part of their story, but we do know that one day a guy named Moses and his brother Aaron show up and they start confronting Pharaoh. And all of a sudden there are frogs and gnats and hail and darkness and creation seems like it's coming apart at the seams. And for a while, life for Beziel and Holiab and their family seems to get a whole lot worse. But then that first Passover night, huddled in their homes, eating the Passover meal, their families have spread the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And that night, just as God had promised through Moses, the angel of death, the destroyer, sweeps over and there is great mourning in Egypt that night. And finally, Pharaoh lets the Israelites go. And they can't believe it's finally happening. And they pass through the Red Sea on dry ground. They watch as the pursuing Egyptian army is swept away in the waves. They watch and marvel as God provides food and water in the desert, how God continues to defeat their enemies and protect them. They tremble as God, Yahweh, speaks to them from the storm on the top of Mount Sinai. And then they marvel as Moses goes up into the top of that storm cloud on top of Mount Sinai. And when Moses comes back down the mountain, not only is he carrying ten commandments, ten words for life, but he's also bringing plans, blueprints, plans for a tent, a place for God to dwell among his people, not far off in the summit of high, some high mountain, but right in their very camp, in the very middle of the camp, a place to delight in God, a place of beauty and holiness and wonder, a taste of Eden. And so they set out to build a tabernacle. They build a tent, a tent of meeting. I always knew that God loved camping, right? And uh, it actually, it probably looked a lot more like this. This is an illustration of what the tabernacle probably looks like. Again, when God goes camping, he does it right, and that's a nice tent. But it was meant to be a mobile Eden, a place to meet with God. And then, of course, there's all these tools and implements and items of beauty and holiness and wonder to facilitate the worship of God in that place, the God who saved them and brought them out of Egypt. But somebody had to build it. Somebody had to build it. Don't miss that. The God who had spoken trillions of stars into existence, who with a word created everything and everyone on earth, this planet we call home, who's just parted the Red Sea. I mean, whipping up a tent, that would have been no big deal for him. And yet he chooses to involve his people in the building, the construction of this tent. It's not an accident. And he has a special role for Beziel and Eliab to play in this work. He chooses to work with his image bearers. In fact, not only does he choose to partner with them, but he fills them with his Holy Spirit. The same Spirit who hovered over the waters at creation fills Beziel to build this place for God's presence. Listen again to Exodus chapter 31. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name, such a personal thing there, I have called by name Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahasamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all 
able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. And just like that, Beziel and Aholiab, they go from dehumanized slaves in Egypt to spirit-empowered artisans ready to craft this beautiful place for God's presence to dwell. And God called them. He called them by name. He gave them wisdom and skill and filled them with himself. The very first time in the Bible, the Spirit says, or God's Spirit is said to have filled someone. That's, this is the first moment where that's ever mentioned. The first time God says, I'm going to fill someone with my Holy Spirit. And he does it to do something really ordinary, something really mundane, as to do their work, to do their jobs. Their work matters so much to God that he gave them his Holy Spirit spirit to do it. And that's the truth, the surprisingly encouraging insight I want us to find here in this story. And it's this. And if you you only write down one thing, if you only have one takeaway from this morning, I hope it's this, that our work was always meant to be collaborative. That our work was always meant to be collaborative. We were never meant to work alone. We were designed from the very beginning to be co-laborers, collaborators, co-laborators with God and with one another. And that's the truth that we can so easily miss if we forget Beziel and Eliab. So let's dive a little bit deeper and reflect back on the story, and we're going to see a couple of truths here. The first is this, that we work with God. We work with God. What, what does it mean that we were designed to be co-laborers, collaborators with God? Well, this was always God's design from the beginning. In the Garden of Eden, he created male and female to image him, a God who is a worker. God himself was working in creation to build this place for us to live. We are made in the image of a God who is a worker. And then in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, before sin ever enters the world, before the fall ever happens— We have this moment where God gives them work to do. Work is not a result of the fall. It's part of God's good design. Genesis 2.15, the Lord took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. God's design from the very beginning was that we would be his image bearers, working and ruling and reigning this good world with him. And there's so many passages, or so many echoes in this passage here in Exodus 31 back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. God has gifted us for the work that he's called us to do, just like he did for Beziel and Aholeab. Do you believe that? That if you are a Christian, not only has God given you natural abilities and skills, but that he has empowered you by his Holy Spirit, not just for Sunday gathered worship, but for Monday scattered worship in and through your work. Uh, Listen to how the Theology of Work commentary puts this. Reflecting on these two forgotten family members, they write this. It's going to be up here on the screen. Perhaps the enduring lesson for us in our work is that whatever God's work is, he does not leave his great work to our unskilled hands. The ways in which he equips us for his work may be as varied as those are those many tasks. In divine faithfulness, the spiritual gifts God gives to us will strengthen us in doing God's work to the very end. He provides us with every blessing in abundance so that we may share abundantly in every good work. And good work there is not just delimited to sort of like good deeds to help a neighbor, but in the work that we spend the majority of our lives doing, 
whether that's paid or unpaid, whether we're retired or actively working for a paycheck. This means that because we work with God, our work matters to God. Uh, We expect God's Spirit to come on Moses when he's preaching, or Miriam when she sings, or when the waters part, or the manna rains down, or all these spectacular moments. But how many of us expect the presence of God for making a tent, for tables, for some clothes? This is what we get this list in verses 7 through 10 out. It's why I had Kay read all of it for us this morning. All the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, the pure lampstand with all of its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of the burnt offering with all of its utensils, and the basin, stand, and finally work garments, craftsmen, artists, designers, architects, and builders, because God cares about it all. Now, you might be thinking this moment, okay, I, I get what you're saying, Bill, but aren't they like literally, wor- you're saying that like all of our work matters to God, but they, aren't they literally building for God in this moment? I mean, they're, they're building a cathedral, essentially. They're building a place for God to come and dwell. They're not just building their neighbor's tent next door. And you're right, but most scholars point out that the tabernacle and then the promised land and the temple, and even when we get to the New Testament, Jesus and the church and new creation, all of it points back to the very beginning. When the presence of God dwelled on earth in the Garden of Eden. And the tabernacle itself is rich with imagery that harkens back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So yes, what Beziel is doing here is unique, no doubt. But He's also just continuing the work that Adam and Eve failed to do, that you and I are commanded to do. Because the entire world is meant to be a tabernacle to God, a place of his presence. And whether you look back to Genesis 1 and 2 or Exodus 31, it's abundantly clear that everything matters to God because everything was meant to be a place where God would dwell with his people. And sometimes as Christians, I think we can assume that God only cares about souls. He only cares about the immaterial realities of creation. That those are the things that are somehow going to really last. And the goal is to escape the physical world so we can just join God on the clouds. But that's not the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is both physical and spiritual. That God cares about matter. He made a lot of matter. He spoke this into existence. All of the materiality that we see around us. And he called it good. He designed us with bodies, and he called them good. Jesus had a body. Jesus has a body and will with us in the new heavens and the new earth. Because our goal, our hope, is not a disembodied sort of spiritual existence, but a healed, renewed new heavens and new earth in which to live. That's the picture in Revelation 21 and 22. A renewed and completed Eden where God dwells with his people. So it means there's no sacred, secular divide. Everything is sacred because everything is meant to draw us into the presence of God. That's why goodness and beauty are so important. So if you work in a creative profession, if you are an artist, your work really matters because beauty matters to God. Look around the world that he's made. It's why I love being in this space. And I'm grateful for for the designers and the craftsmen who designed this building. Built it back in 1926. It's why we have an art gallery in our downtown campus to showcase art and beauty. And our work, again, whether paid or unpaid, whether you build homes or teach kids or preach sermons or work at Cerner, whatever the work is that you do, everything we do is an attempt to sort of 
create echoes of Eden. Every good thing you make, every person you serve, every act of beauty and kindness and justice is an attempt to give others a taste of the presence of God. Which means that you actually have way more in common with Beziel than you may recognize. Sure, you're not literally building a tabernacle like he was, but you are, through your work, giving an opportunity for people to experience the goodness and presence of God and whatever it is that he's called you to do. So that's the first thing. We work with God. Second, though, we also work with others. We never labor alone because we work with God, but we also never labor alone because we work with others. And again, this is the pattern we see in the garden. This is not something new that's happening in Exodus 31, but a continuation of what God started in the beginning. Adam is unable to work alone and do the work that God has called to him to by himself, even with God's presence there in the garden. He is designed, right, to have this partnership with Eve. Sometimes I think when we read the verse that it was not good for Adam to be alone, we either think, A, he's just lonely, or B, we think, well, he, he, can't, you know, he can't be fruitful and multiply, have kids on his own. He needs Eve to do that with him. But we often neglect the fact that it's just even the whole task that God has called them to of filling the earth, of managing the garden, all this, that it takes a partnership of people to do this, a fellow image bearer. This is how God has designed us to work together in this work, not just for the work of procreation, but for the work of productivity in the garden. So this is a continuation of this work together. And you see it here, because Beziel is given this incredible task of building this temple, but he's not going to do it alone. Yes, God's Spirit is in him. God has filled him. But he also is given a partner in Aholiab, and this whole community of men and women who are gifted in these skills to do this work together. I recently listened to a talk by New York Times columnist David Brooks, and it's kind of him describing his journey of faith and spiritual formation. Uh, just as a side note, it's a muscleless and it's so good. If you go to Google and just punch in David Brooks Trinity Forum is where he gave that talk. David Brooks Trinity Forum. You can find that talk. It's worth listening to. But as just an aside, he talks about, uh, he, he has a, a Jewish background. He, he talks about the creation story a bit, and he says, Rabbi Sachs observes that the story of creation of the universe in Genesis 1 is covered in nine verses, but the instructions for building the tabernacle consume 300 verses in the Torah. Why is this, that rabbi asks? Because a community is a group of people who build something together. And the Israelites needed to be taught how to build something together to render them into a people. We were designed to work together. God could have spoken the tabernacle into existence, just like he did all of creation. But he chose to give these instructions to Moses and have skilled craftsmen build this thing together. And the takeaway here is that because we work with others, our work matters to our neighbors. I mean, our work matters to God, but our, also our work matters to our neighbors. And our work matters to God, not just because, again, it's for His glory, but it's also how He's arranged this for us to love one another. Our work matters to our neighbors in Kansas City. And Kansas City is a better city because this local church exists in it. And not just because of some good deeds that we might do through an outreach partner occasionally, but because of the work that you do every single week where God has placed you. 
So think about this. As I look around at this room, and I don't know every one of your stories, I don't know every one of your professions, but I know many of them. And these are all roles, jobs in this room. This room is full of teachers, healthcare workers, mental health professionals, engineers, janitors, students, financial professionals, judges, law enforcement officials, salespeople, construction industry workers, real estate professionals, moms and dads, grandparents, business owners. They're all sitting here in this room. And, and yes, your work provides for your own needs. But it also means that as a result of your work, children are cared for and nurtured. People's bodies and minds are healed. Jobs are created. People have homes to live in. Wastewater is cleaned. Justice is served. People are protected. Wealth is invested. Financing is provided. Because again, I think we tend to think of our work primarily through the lens of this is something that I've been given to you to, to earn money to provide for my needs and the needs of my, my family. But in God's brilliant design, our work that we do to provide for our own needs is also the means by which we provide for our neighbor's needs as well. So for example, this week our family is moving into a new home. We finally found a home we're so excited about that we're moving in. But that's only possible because of the work of our neighbors. Many different neighbors. Some who we know well, some who we don't know well at all. But the realtors who found the home, the realtor who listed it, the bankers who helped us to secure the mortgage, the movers who are moving our things into the house on Thursday, the uh, appraiser who calculated the value of the home, the inspectors who, who combed every inch of that to make sure that it was safe and sound, the, the admins, the many admins along the way who kept the process moving, who sent us documents to sign and made sure we signed them. Our insurance agent who made sure that we had the insurance we needed so that the bank would make the loan. And so many others, not to mention our neighbors many, many decades ago who designed that house, the, the craftsmen and women who, who built the house and the furniture and all those things that went into it, the neighbors who cared for that home over the years until we bought it. And yes, you could look at any of those people. Maybe they looked at themselves, I'm just doing my job. I'm just earning a living. But without them doing a job and earning a living, our family wouldn't have a home. Our family wouldn't have a place to live. See, our work was always meant to be collaborative. But without them, without that work together, we miss out. And that's the truth that we miss when we forget Bezalel and Aholiab. We miss this truth that our work was always meant to be collaborative with God and with others. But there's one more thing we can't miss here this morning. And that is that we work with the one who rescues us. We work with the one who rescues us. Like Bezalel and Eliab, each of us in our own way is born into a slavery. Enslaved using our labor, devoting it not to building for God's kingdom, not serving our neighbor, but building our own pyramids of, of acclaim or comfort or reputation or self-sufficiency or financial security or consumerism. And far too often, even my work as a pastor, right, can functionally become more about those things than about working for the glory of God and the good of my neighbor. 
And the problem is that we, along with our first parents in the garden, we have left God's presence. We have chosen to define good and bad on our own apart from them, from him. And when we do that, we cut ourselves off both from that relationship that we have with him and with one another. The, the collaboration breaks down. And so as Tim Keller puts it, work successes go to our heads and work failures go to our hearts. We end up making an idol out of work. We try to get from it what only God can give us. To rescue ourselves. Friends, every workaholic is trying to find a way back into the garden. But that is a way that only ends in despair and death. But hear the good news. God and Jesus came to find you. We moved out of the garden and rejected him, but he left the garden to go find us. He has found you. Jesus has died for you, and he has promised that I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Friends, Jesus promised that he will be with you always. And always means not just always on Sunday when you're here gathered in this room singing worship songs, but always means always at work on Monday, whatever that is. His presence is with you. The Holy Spirit will fill you for that work on Monday. Thanks be to God for that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the truth of your word, for this, these two forgotten family members who remind us that you're, you always meant to work with us and for us to work together. I pray that as a community of faith, you would give us fresh kind of imagination for what that can look like, together and in our own individual callings. We're so thankful for how you have gifted us. Would you fill us with your spirit so that our work becomes an act of worship? Would you set us free from the bondage of sin and death into the new world of life and hope. And would our work be a foretaste of that to each one who encounters it? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.